This is Dr. Ben Pearl, and I am honored to have the utility knife of cycling, Jason Berry. He's been a coach. He's been a journalist. He's been a competitor uh, in a number of disciplines, both mountain bike and uh, some other stuff. So we're going to talk to Jason a little bit. Welcome, Jason. First, I got to ask you, how did you get into uh, cycling? Uh, what was the impetus? Well, thanks for having me, Ben. I, uh, I, for some reason, when I was growing up, uh, I think I caught a couple episodes of the Tour de France and was immediately hooked. So whereas a lot of kids liked watching football and, and baseball, I really liked watching cycling. And uh, I think Phil Liggett was, you know, listening to that guy's voice uh, early on as a kid. It was, he, I think he did a great right? job of commentating and I was pretty hooked on, uh, on the sport. And, and so I'd already uh, always had an appreciation for cycling. So that would be the era of who was riding the tour at that time, just to get context. Oh, geez. Uh, um, or who was playing football? <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I remember, um, I mean, it was after Eddie Marks, but not long after. Um, okay. Because I, I remember watching in the uh, mid, mid to late 70s, for sure. Mm hmm. That's cool. I mean, I didn't really get introduced to cycling on my and then I'm a 70s kid uh, until I saw really breaking away. I mean, that was my intro real. I mean, of course, everybody knew of the Tour de France, but I, I didn't watch it uh, so much back then in the 70s. So you were kind of an early adopter, but uh, funny part for me, and I'm not sure if you know this, but I, I, I was a, uh, I went out for track at Indiana University, but breaking away put IU on the map for me, and then ended up getting hurt in uh, track, and ended up doing the the little five my senior year. So oh, that's it was, cool. Yeah, it, and it, that was electric. Uh, just having thirty, forty thousand of the student body, you know, screaming on a, on a track. It was like. As uh, Eddie Van Guys, who was played in the movie, said, it was like walking into like a gladiator stadium. It was just so much energy. Yeah, and I imagine I think that would uh, that would have a pretty amazing effect on you because in the United States, you know, it's unfortunately it's pretty rare that we get large uh, groups of spectators. So that's yeah, that's pretty cool. So now bring me forward to, and there's a couple areas. We've got the Tour de France that's finishing up. So maybe we'll lead a little bit with that. Tell me about, because you had you had some unique opportunities covering the tour. Tell me how that came about. And then um, we can fast forward to what you think about this year's tour without giving a spoiler alert. Uh, although I think that it is common news that uh, Chris Broom just tested positive for, for COVID. It looks like everybody's gotten sweeped up in the pandemic. Oh, that's, I didn't catch that. I've been uh, working on my van all morning, but um, uh, yeah, I was, I was very fortunate in that um, I, I made a couple films about mountain biking. Uh, first one was Off-Road to Athens and then, um, and then 24 Solo. And that, uh, I guess gave me enough credibility to uh, get on with the United States team in, back in 2009. And at that time, there was only, um, I think, three U.S. teams that were competing in the tour. And um, there was Slipstream and uh, High Road and I think BMC. 
um, I guess you could call BMC a Swiss team, but it was run by U.S. management. But yeah, I got lucky, and I um, I got on board with HTC Columbia uh, right when they brought on HTC as a sponsor, and I basically got to spend almost a year with the team, starting at the Tour of Switzerland and then um, finishing with some training camps in, in December in uh, the Canary Islands. So uh, I, I got probably more of a behind-the-scenes look at the Tour de France than most spectators um, will ever get. Um, and you know, making that making that documentary, Chasing Legends, was a, it was the highlight of my career. It was one of the most uh, important things I feel I've ever done, and uh, and the best product that I feel I ever turned out. So I was around the tour for that, and then uh, a year later, I, I premiered, and we uh, did a I think 36 cities in the United States, and. Um, and in Europe, we had a, a very successful screening tour, so that was pretty awesome. I got to go to the O2, the largest HD theater in Europe, and uh, got to do a radio show on BBC with Mark Cavendish and Taylor Swift. She had a concert that evening, so she was doing a promo uh, at BBC, and so I got to meet and chat with her, and, and, um, and Mark came late, so that gave me more time to talk with her which was great. And then, um, but then, so that was 2010. And then in 2011, I got picked up by Versus to do some behind the scenes uh, vignettes at the Tour de France. Then um, they got bought by NBC Sports and uh, tried to continue working with them, but they fired a lot of their American contractors uh, to save money and, and only hire Europeans. And I've kept in touch with some of the production team and, and I, I would go back to the, the drop of a hat because uh, um, while I, I didn't get on too great with the new executive producer, the rest of the team was spectacular and uh, Joel, the main producer, um, him and I stay in touch and, uh, and I'd love the opportunity to go back someday. But yeah, so, you know, not to rattle on too much, but I've, I've had um, a good experience with the tour and uh and it, it's something that um you know if you're if you're not into it i get it it's just it, it, it appears like a really long bike race but if you are into it there's so much intricacies and so much uh interest and drama and and personal achievement that these guys are trying to achieve and hopefully soon more women i really love that they're they're have they're bringing back the fm tour um and having having more women will only help the sport but yeah so it's it's a it's a really special thing and what i love i think most about it is it's not just a bike race it the canvas on which it takes place is all of france and, and neighboring countries so you really get this awesome travel log to the whole experience and that's something that you don't get with any other sport it is the most watched annual sporting event on the planet there's billions of people that tune in to watch it. And yes, more people watch the Olympics or World Cup soccer, but that's only every four years. So it's a very special event in that it's got a global appeal and uh, and it's one of the hardest events on the planet without, without question. Yes, uh, so give me sort of a fly on the wall uh, snippet. And I'm sure there's a lot in your film, Chasing Legends. And I'm embarrassed to say that I have not watched the film. And the reason I think I haven't watched it was at that time I was going through some major life changes and things that were happening, both with my practice and, and some other things uh, with, with the young kids and so forth. Uh, but I will watch it. I, I read a, a bit about it and prepped for the interview. But give us a couple things either from that or just in general 
because you've had the opportunity in other venues to uh, see the tour up close and behind the scenes? Um, it's, it's, yeah, I, I don't want to go on too much about it because I'll sound like a boyfriend that got dumped. Um, <laughs> oh, and by the way, uh, just for you and the listeners, um, we're doing this as I'm heading up the coast to Maine and we're about to go through the, the big dig tunnel in Boston. So we're, we're both, we're all going to find out whether we have to restart and take a, a little break here. But, uh, as long as we have the signal and if we, if we do lose each other, Jason, I'll, I'll get right back in as soon as we get through the tunnel. All right. No problem. Thanks for the heads up. And, uh, and kind of cool, right? That you can be doing this while you're driving. That's pretty amazing. So I'm, I was, I'm sitting I was down amazing, here. At, folks. Uh, I'm yep, sitting here in Frederick, Maryland, and you're in, in Maine or in Boston, headed to Maine. That's pretty cool. Yep. And I was I was also, yeah, it took us a couple uh, workings to, to make sure that uh, the, the, the way to do it and how to send it and phone apps, et cetera. But uh, I was amazed at the quality because there's just less uh, competition with a with an audio versus a video signal that I sometimes do. So it looks like so far so good. So go ahead and uh, and share a couple things um, that, that you think would be cool. Um, there was there was a lot of things that I was surprised by and uh, and a lot of screw ups I made because there is a very specific culture for the racers. And, you know, in the United States, you've got to look at them like NFL players or, you know, like uh, golf players or or. I don't know, like the, the highest, they're, they're total rock stars in Europe. And um, when you're, it, it's one thing to go over and, and meet them at a, uh, a team meeting or something where there's no media presence, there's no fans around, you know, you go and talk to them and obviously there's normal people and, and that's that's great way to, to meet them. But then when you're put into these small European towns where most of the races take place, it's incredible to see the, the amount of media pressure and the amount of spectators. And uh, that alone was, it's daunting, it's eye-opening, and, um, and it's exciting. You know, it, it adds a level of intensity to the whole situation when you've got everywhere these guys go, there's cameras on them, and there's people trying to get autographs, and there's people trying to get interviews. And when you're kind of treated like one of the team, uh, because when we were filming HTC Columbia, uh, you know, the, the owner of the team opened all the doors for us and almost all the doors for us. But, but basically he, I was the first person as far as a media person that was allowed on the team bus. And I didn't realize what a big deal that was at first. And then also there's things like dinner time, the riders all sit at the same table. And I go up to them at Tour de Suisse with this big camera in my hands and sit down beside them and I try and start talking to them. And one of the, um, uh, one of the uh, sport directors literally grabbed me by the, the back of the shirt and pulled me away and said, what, what the hell are you doing? You don't talk to them while they're eating. That is their, that's their time. You do not put a camera in. You know, I had no idea. Nobody tells you this stuff. So there's a lot of funny little things. That, well, they're funny now, but I, it was mortifying at the time. And um, so little things like that were I found interesting. Um, being on the bus, especially during the tour, uh, it's very very special place because the riders are both changing and and getting out of their sweaty clothes, so they're naked half the time, but they're also talking about 
what's working for them, what's not working for them, what's good for them, what's bad for them. And 21 days of racing, that's an awfully long poker game. And if you're a favorite, or if you're somebody who's maybe going to win a stage, there's a lot involved with those, those how you play your cards, because everybody's suffering, everybody's had a crash, everybody's got some sort of injury. And they don't want to allow someone media-wise to come in and hear that because it could be used against them. And so it was it was really special to get those moments of suffering where they walk outside the bus, they're all smiles. They walk inside the bus and they're almost in tears because they don't know if they can get through the next day. And I was uh, allowed into that world and they trusted me. And I, I always... Um, treated that with a, a great amount of respect uh some other things that were really interesting is seeing behind the scenes of the american uh film production the american tv production once it went from versus to nbc sports and what's involved in that and just the logistics of getting all those people and all that gear from one location to another through the smallest towns in europe which have small streets and small you know low bridges and you know it's incredibly challenging um we were doing production on the fly out of a van and it's just incredibly challenging uh to, to have the logistical nightmare of travel on top of the media push the the fans and um and the importance of the event so it's it's really hard to explain some of that stuff unless you're there but i highly recommend anybody who is at all a fan of cycling go to a smaller pro tour like tour swiss it is the best place to get up close to the riders a it's incredibly gorgeous b you there's not nearly as many spectators so you can get right up to the riders when they are at a, a either the start town or the finish town and uh you have a lot better exposure and that is one of the things that i look forward to doing uh just as a spectator it's going back to europe and going to something like Tour Swiss where I can really enjoy it more because I feel like, you know, I, I attended, I think, four Tours de France and uh, not, I didn't make the finish line to all of them, but I was there and I didn't get much of a chance to enjoy it because it happened so fast and there's so much movement involved that I really want to go back and retrace some steps and, and have a glass of wine or two and, and eat some croissants. Just, <laughs> Up with the, all the uh, steps, you know, the the pre-toast, the after-toast, the first dance, the 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 photos with the with the groomsmen, bridesmaids. That uh, there's no, there wasn't a lot of chance to smell the roses and and just kind of soak it in that way. But I'm sure you soak some of it in, and uh, it'll be cool, I guess, when you can go when you're just a spectator and having fun. Yeah, yeah, I very much look forward to that, and it's it's fun for me to go back and watch the films and and. I'll have to get you um, uh, the uh, link so you can watch it online. But um, yeah, it's, yeah, absolutely. It's really that's going to be, that's gonna be it's, my it's next cycling film after the tour. What's that? That's going to be my next cycling film after the tour. Oh, after right, I watch right, the, the rest of the stages. Uh, hey, um, wanted to switch gears a second because you talked about. Uh, the riders and how they endured pain and you really seeing that kind of uh, not just in the in the finish shoots for the uh stage but uh really kind of seeing them have to having to go through it a, in a little more intimately with some of the things they had to deal with um 
I, I don't know if it was uh, an Eddie Merckx quote, and you might be able to let me know, but I, I remember talking to Eddie Van Guys, who played the uh, Italian villain in, in Breaking Away, and I said, well, what really distinguishes sort of the heart of the racer? And he said, in a nutshell, how well can you deal with pain? That was the difference. Um, do, you, do you remember if that was a, a Merckx quote? Uh, or was that just something that came out of Eddie Van Guys, who was actually named after Eddie Merckx? Um, that could have that could have easily been uh, a Merckx quote. There's no doubt about it. Um, I I was very fortunate in that I, I got to interview uh, Eddie Merckx for our film, and um, and he gave me a similar quote, and it's it's on the movie poster. Uh, a couple of quotes. I mean, hang, everything that comes out of the guy's mouth is kind of legend. Um, he was a really interesting cat. But uh, yeah, he said to race the Tour de France is an honor. It's the best you can do in cycling, but you must have great talent. You must sacrifice and you will suffer. And he yeah. said to me personally, like we were talking about, he was asking me, and this is what was great about him is, you know, we did our interview and I, I asked my questions and I, he was in a bit of a grumpy mood. So he refused to answer in English, which he could easily do. But it was kind of neat that, um, he only answered in, in French. And I think it gave the movie a little bit more of an authentic flavor. Uh, it was really hard for me because my French is rubbish. And usually in an interview, you pick up on what the answer is and you go down a path with that answer. Well, if you don't know what the answer was, you can't elaborate on it at all. And you then later have to get it translated and hope it's, it's a good answer. But after we finished the interview stuff, it was a cold, chilly day in the fall in uh, Brussels, Belgium. And we went into his office. He made me an espresso and we were both sitting there warming up. And, uh, and then it's, he switches back to English and he says, so you race. And um, I said, yeah, I've, I've raced for 20 years, uh, mostly mountain biking. And, um, but I've done some, some road races and some cyclocross. And, he's, and he just kind of looked at me, squinted his eyes. And he said, did you win? I said, yeah, I got lucky. I won a couple of races. And he said, winning is not luck. Winning is determination. I said, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with you there. And, and he said, one of the best pieces of advice that he likes to give racers is that you, you will never win a race uh, or earn winning a race until you feel as though you deserve it. And he said, that only comes from training and training and training and training. And when you feel as though you've worked harder than everybody that shows up to the race, that's the day you, you can win that race. And he said, yeah, there's, there's luck involved and there's all this other stuff, but he said, you, you'll never get far without feeling as though you deserve to win it. And that's always kind of stuck with me because you can apply that to just about anything in life, right? If, if you on, if you're honest with yourself and you're putting in the work, uh, then you deserve success. And, you know, you might get it without the work if you're lucky, but really you, you, if you apply that mentality and you do the hard work, you do all the, the homework in the background, and then you get to that finish, you should. And just like with cycling, you, you create a plan for your success. You, you, you know, it's always like a pyramid. You have to do the base work first, and then you slowly get better and, and faster. And same thing with, if, with anything you're working on in life, I think. I want to uh, share sort of an anecdote that, highlights what you said at a different sort of level than what you raced at because my particular race was a collegiate race which was kind of like 
an NCAA sport. Uh, so probably nowhere other than Indiana University and then maybe a couple other universities that have patterned uh, Grand Prix after the little 500. Do you have that level of cyclists that sometimes it actually goes specifically to cycle? In fact, there were some guys that came from other schools and transferred and were on, uh, you know, off like the, the cutter team was composed of sometimes guys that just came to be on the cutter team, you know, and right. uh, as an indie team, you know, they called it the cutters after the movie. But what I will tell you, uh, based on the same thing that you're talking about is, is sort of that recognition moment of how hard you worked and how, not just how hard you worked, but that feeling of going in like you've earned it was that my, uh, my own sort of race, mindset came to me when after getting uh injured with track i decided i'll I'll give this bike racing a try at at iu and i i joined a team uh after uh, rushing a fraternity that had the winning team in the previous year and they had a guy that do you remember the name jimmy pollock he was a national uh u.s rider for a while okay well it I don't know how far he made it up the ranks, but the short of it is that he, in undergrad, was was riding for a team called AE Pi. It was a fraternity, and they were like the team. And I I went to that fraternity, and uh, I'll never forget like the, the Genesis Phil, Phil Collins era. And I think he was on a wind trainer playing, uh, and and Home by the Sea was playing. He had it on, you know, the the, the tape recording. And I, I walked in because I was interested in cycling, and I, I asked him, I, uh, you know, a little bit about what, what it was like training and so forth because I wanted to find out about it. Well, this dude would not even acknowledge that I was even there. And at that moment, uh, Jason, I decided, well, who the, who the hell are you? You know, you, you – and so I got in my mind – I ended up with another fraternity – we were not the, you know, the big name on campus in terms of the race, but my mindset, I would purposefully go out in the winter while other people were on the rain trainers on my uh, wind trainers on my road bike just to get that mental toughness that I felt I needed. And unlike you, I was not uh, a technical mechanical guy with the bike. I had, you know, the gift of being able to uh, the one technical part of the race was being able to hurdle on the bike. But the short of it is that I think the mindset of you deciding you wanted to do it and going through all that um, self-inflicted pain gave you your, you know, no moss sort of attitude that, you know, you're going to you're not going to be intimidated by all these other things because there's a big psychology component. Maybe you can share some of the psychology components in your own racing or stuff that you've observed with the so-called psych out any any stories come to mind with um with that type of uh, scenario yeah i think that's a, a great example what you bring up because we all you know you do we all have the same 24 hours in every day right and it's up to you if you're going to apply a hardship to your life and uh one of the you know i, I completely agree that the the key to to winning in cycling is is learning how to suffer uh, yes, you can add technical aspects to it, and those are those are important as well. And then nutrition, recovery, training, all that stuff. But at the end of the day, you, you have to be able to 
take those days where everybody else might be on a trainer and dreading it, dreading the weather outside. And you have to embrace that. And you have to say, okay, this is an opportunity for me to go and see why, why do I feel like this is so bad? Why do I feel like this is going to be a horrible day? Is it the cold? Is it the, the wet? Is it the snow? Is it the, the wind? Is it, you know, what, whatever it might be, when you can stand face to face with that discomfort and when you can embrace that discomfort and it's, it's not that fun. You know, a lot of times you're by yourself and a lot of times you're, no one's going to see if you cut the ride short, no one's going to see if you don't reach your, your power output or your heart rate output for your intervals, you know, it's just you. And it's, if you can get into a place where you can embrace that and, it is a bit masochistic without a doubt, but it's not just torturing yourself. It's doing it for a reason, for a goal. And, you know, if you can embrace that, there was a year that I went to um, uh, bat and kill used to, used to be a really, really big race in the United States up in um, near Saratoga Springs, New York. And, you know, the United States doesn't have cobbled roads. And therefore we don't have, and we haven't been around as long as Europe. So we don't have the cobble classics that you get in Europe in the spring, but for the United States, that was it. That was because a lot of that road race was on gravel. And, um, you know, I went up with my team a couple of days before and it started snowing and a few people on the team were really put off by that. And they're, they're questioning whether or not they were even going to race. And I just had the mentality of, well, to hell with this. This is a great opportunity because so many other people are going to be disheartened and people will be depressed and they'll be worried and they'll be off their game. And so, yeah, like you had said before, so much of it can be mental, whether or not you have done the training and you feel like you're ready for it, you deserve it. And if you're there to, to participate or if you're there to win and come hell or high water, you know, if you, if you realize that, you know, it's almost like crashing too, you know, some people crash and they roll around on the ground and it's, and they, you know, they, obviously if it's bad, you, you can't get back up, but you know, I don't know. There's something about like when you crash and, and you get back on the bike and you keep going, that's, that's awesome to me. And there's not too many sports, you know, in the world where, Riders are in Lycra going 60, 65 miles an hour, 70 miles an hour for a uh, pitcock. And if you crash, you know, like I had a crash in, in one race and they put me in a burn unit in, in Johns Hopkins Hospital because I lost so much skin off the left side of my body. Um, that's that's pretty unique that, you know, it, it's a sport that requires that. And what's so funny to me, not funny, but it's it's just a little bit disturbing, like, so many people, I think, look down on cycling. You know, you get these, you get these rednecks in their trucks going by and honking at you and, and gassing it and trying to coal roll you and all this stuff. And, and they think that they're tough, you know, well, they're a big fat guy in a truck and you're out there on some burning hot day, or maybe it's the middle of winter freezing to death and you're in hardly any clothing and you're out there just caning yourself. Exposed, exposed. Yeah, you're completely exposed. And there's not too many sports like that where, you know what, the sport isn't going to stop for you. It's not going to stop if you crash. It's not going to stop if someone pushes you over. It's not going to stop if you flip over your handlebars. It keeps going. And, yeah, I think that's pretty unique. You know, baseball, not to knock baseball, but, you know, they, they got a guy on the sidelines and he's a backup pitcher or whatever. He's warming up. 
and then they stop the game to let them out on the field for 10 minutes and then warm up some more out on the field. It's ridiculous. If you think about that compared to cycling, that's a joke. I mean, not to put down baseball, it's hard as hell to hit a, a fastball coming at you 90 miles an hour. I, I got a lot of respect. But in that respect, the amount of time that they, you know, and and you get hit by the ball, they stop, you know, everybody takes yeah. five. And, no, that's not going to happen in cycling. You crash, you, you could you know, lose a finger and they're not going to stop. It's a technical thing and it's a power, you know, a momentary power sport. And that's, that's the thing always that... Uh, you know, distinguishes the talented sprinters, right? That could run their uh, 50 meter and, and they have to put, don't, don't, don't get me wrong. They have to put a lot of work to get there, but the guys who endure like the, the 800 meters, the mile, the 10, the 10,000 meters in the marathon. Oh my gosh. Seeing those guys gut it out. It's just, it's just a different level of uh, being a warrior. I would say one is, Absolutely. one is raw talent. And one is being a warrior. Correct. Yeah. So let's let's take a step uh, into an unseemly aspect of the sport and, and give me, because you, you follow this probably a lot more closely than I do. Where do you think we are with the whole doping thing? I mean, I'm, I want to just share a brief anecdote. Everybody knows about, uh, you know, Lance Armstrong. But I will share something that is a lesser known thing. And I don't know if you knew Rebecca Everling um local a local rider to our area but she was uh trying to race at t-town and i think was doing pretty well for the sprint velodrome i don't know what the distance was i can't remember but i i uh she came in as a, a patient i'm a podiatrist and she came in as a patient and was having some knee issues and i did something with some cycling orthotics that helped her a bit and uh i i decided i watch her you know uh go up at the trials and uh what I heard is that she was doing very well with her chief competitor, who was a, a, a veteran. And then it seemed like two or three weeks prior to the trials, uh, her foe, the veteran, ended up surpassing her. And I have to tell you, she had shoulders like a linebacker. Now, fortunately, I don't remember what her name was because I, you know, when you cast dispersions, you don't know what really was there. But it seems to me there was a lot of uh, questions in terms of whether she was doping it up or not. Where do you think we are in the sport now? And what, what are your comments uh, about situations like that? Some of those people that maybe never got the opportunity because they decided to race clean while others were uh, glorifying their physique and uh, their chances of making, uh, making the Olympic teams, et cetera. Well, I think, um, you know, anytime you you have an opportunity to be paid to win an athletic event, people will cheat. I think that's unfortunate. Uh, I think that's human nature that, uh, you know, there's people out there who, and it's a cheat is usually a cheat. You know, you, my view on it is that chances are you're not going to start cheating when you're 25 years old and you're, you know, I just kind of feel like people have probably been to cheat their whole lives and um, and they're not just going to cheat at their sport. They're going to cheat at work. They're going to cheat at on their, their, you know, wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, whatever. Um, I think that's, that's just human nature. There are people out there who will put the success ahead of their own um, morals and their own integrity. 
And that's an unfortunate thing, but we don't live in a perfect world. I was very, very happy that uh, I never did anything performance enhancing wise, and I still won some races. But I know for a fact that there are people I raced against who were doping. And I know for a fact that there's still people in the Tour de France who are doping. Um, I don't know the riders as much today, but I don't know. It's, it's an unfortunate part of the sport. But what I dislike equally as much is the lack of exposure other sports get when they have cheaters. You think there's not guys doing steroids in football? Come on. You think there's guys not doing, or, you know, women not doing steroids in gymnastics? Come on. Um, it's just that cycling, for some reason, gets more of that negative press. Um, and I don't know if you can, you know, make comparisons. I, I've never looked into it to see statistically if there have been more proven dopers in cycling than other sports. I don't know about that stuff, but it's always going to be present. It's always going to be a problem, and whether it's, performance enhancing drugs or a hidden motor in the bicycle um you know there's always going to be ways people find to cheat and uh, you know I, I got into kind of a, a heated argument with someone um it, kind of online and I'm, I'm very glad we're both still friends and everything but um <laughs> but a person was saying that and i i may have i may have misunderstood them but i'm pretty sure they were saying that hey if it's not in the rule book you can do it so take, for instance, you know, the, the one woman who won a, a, a big gravel race by having four or five male teammates pace line her to the finish line and give her bottles, give her support, whereas every other female that was racing didn't have five guys looking out for her. And to me, that's, that's just as bad as doping. That's ridiculous. If you can't win without a team of guys around you, if you're, a, you know, unless it's a, play, a fair playing field and every other female in that race has got the same support, that's bullshit. So I don't know. It's cheating is always going to happen. And I personally, I don't need a rule book to tell me that's cheating. Yeah, I've got moral morals and integrity and I, I try to abide by fair play. And if someone else doesn't have that same advantage, it's like, it's like going to a, you know, it's like going to a, a triathlon and drafting off the guy in front of you on the bike park. That's it's, it's, it's bonkers, but people still do that. So I think the whole doping question, it's, it's unfortunate. It's always going to be there. Um, but I do wish that other sports were tested as much. No, no sport tests as much as professional cycling, as far as I'm aware. And that's coming from a friend of mine who is uh, one of the heads of uh, USA Cycling. And, you know, the amount of money that cycling puts into testing is uh statistically a lot higher than most other sports and i just wish that other sports were as um regulated and as aware of their athletes as cycling is um but yeah what are you gonna do right well hopefully it's getting better i will tell you that uh one of my sport heroes that i uh, got a chance to know over the years because he's uh, he's a diabetic and he, he was very outspoken about uh, doping and one of the few prolific um, athletes to, to be so outspoken because it's it's not a popular thing, especially calling out uh, your own teammates. And I'll, I'll, I'll let you know that Gary Hall Jr. during his tenure called out a lot of uh, folks internationally uh, that were cheating and swimming. And then, you know, we all know this, the story, the East German uh, 
swim team, et cetera. But uh, he wasn't afraid to call out Amy Van Dyken. Uh, and what it is about sport is, you know, so many people get wrapped up into the darlings of the sport, whether it be Amy Van Dyken or Lance Armstrong, and they don't really take a step back sometimes to look at, you know, is, you know, are there, is there any smoke that might indicate, so not to point out anyone. So, you know, just hopefully people listening to this will take the words that you and I are both saying that it's, it's really the way that you want to be to feel good about yourself. Cause it's like you say, when you're ramping up, I read an article about, uh, Mark Spitz, who unquestionably was, you know, one of the greatest swimmers of all time with his performance. But when he tried to come back, uh, there was an article written about him where on his comeback, much older, he was missing laps in the training uh, cycle, you know, missing laps as in counting laps that weren't really training laps. And the only person you're fooling is yourself, you know, at the end of the day. Right. Um, Tell me, you're, you're how old now, uh, Jason? I'm um, 52. Okay, so I got five years on you. I'm 57. Here's what I've noticed as I've, and I, I, don't, I don't ride like you do anymore. I play a lot of soccer, and I uh, commute to work, and when I go out with my friends, and uh, they call it the Group de Lion Park, I get smoked because they're, they're training for half Ironmans and, and this, that, and the other. And I just go out and expect that I'm going to hang with them for 30 miles. And it just doesn't happen anymore. Cause, but what I think I've lost a little bit of my, uh, endurance capacity. What are your tricks for the guys like me that are working kind of a, a intense professional life and then try to bring it to the, uh, bring it to the workout to get some endurance. And sometimes obviously it's cross training like swimming, but you've managed to integrate some stuff. And, uh, Maybe you have a couple things that you would share on maintaining that endurance as you get into your 40s, 50s, and beyond. Uh, other, than, <laughs> other than suffering. Yeah, it's, doing it's it kind of funny that you, about it. Yeah, it's kind of funny that you ask me that at this point right now because um, I'm, not, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not in a place I want to be with fitness, and, uh, and I'm signed up for a, an enduro mountain bike race next month. And I went out to pre-ride some sections uh, last weekend, and I was just, I was so not happy with my performance. Um, but it's one of those things that, you know, fitness is is a real fickle thing. When I, I asked George Hincappy what he was going to miss most about racing, and he said that uh, other than the camaraderie, he was going to miss that feeling of being incredibly fit. And I, I definitely feel the same way i i'm you know if you go a year without racing it's going to take you three years to get back to where you were or two years if you're lucky but um i think the the thing that i try and do is to because i i kind of burned out on cycling you know it was my life it was my job it was my social life and it was just too much it was insulated and and there's i wasn't meeting new people and so i I stopped competing after 20 years and then I started to enjoy riding again and just getting out on my bicycle. So, you know, I've competed in, in a lot of other sports, but I think it's just as important to maintain a happiness level with it because you can't be suffering all the time. I mean, it's not healthy. It's like Lance Armstrong. One of the few things I agree about what he said about endurance athletes is, 
they're probably running from something. And we all know Lance certainly was. And I think, you know, if you're, it's hard to be really competitive if you're satisfied and happy in life. It helps a lot more to have some sort of a demon inside you that you're raging against and that allows you to go and, and do that suffering. And frankly, I don't think that's a healthy way to live for a majority of your life if you're going out and doing these line bending intervals and, and uh, you know, six, seven hour rides when it's 20 degrees out. It's, it's, a, it's an awful amount of suffering. So I just try and mix it up. You know, I try and do a little bit of other sports. I've gotten really into kiteboarding and I've, I've always been really into surfing and windsurfing and, um, and even with my mountain biking, it's, you know, you can make small changes. Like I used to be a cross country guy and then now I'm getting much more into gravity and learning how to really jump a bicycle. And the, I'm going to some of the bike parks like Bryce and Snowshoe and having a great time because I'm at the it's like being a punk at the bottom of the scale again. I'm, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm as, I'm as bad as anybody's going to be. And it's fun to apply that, you know, those, you know, the learning and, and to not be, uh, you know, not be worried about how horrible you look and how horrible your, your, um, your lines are or your, your style or whatever. And as long as you're safe and having fun, that's, I think that's really important. And so I know some people have, um, you know, they've, they've continued racing. I got a buddy, Ken Bell, who he's, he was a huge influence on my world. And, uh, and he was, he's been racing since he was a teenager and he's still really fit and races a lot. I don't know how he does it because he's my age as well. And, uh, he still gets on the podium at races and I don't understand how he can be into fitness for the, you know, the same kind of thing for that long, but you know, more power to them. And I think for me personally, mixing it up with other stuff is, is important mentally. Otherwise you just burn out and then you start to hate it and then you start to not want to do it. So it's, it's a balance. And I think as long as you're, you know, I had to cut back on a lot of carbs, as long as you're watching what you're eating um, and maintaining a, a healthy body, you can start to apply yourself to other things as well. And, and that's kind of what life is all about. I think is, is trying different things. And, um, you know, what I, I got tired of crashes, so I didn't like doing road races anymore. It's not, I'm not saying that I was, you know, it, it's not, if you race road, you're going to crash, whether it's someone else crashing you out or you crash and take someone else out, whatever it happens. It's part of the sport. And when you've had a lot of crashes that put you in the hospital, that gets old. So I don't, I don't race road. I don't think I ever will again, but I still love getting up, riding and, and supporting those who do. So I don't know, for me personally, it's just about mixing it up and, and, you know, finding other fun things to do that keep you fit and, and allow you to eat, uh, you know, relatively what you want to eat or, or have a few beers, whatever. You've also been in the world of coaching. Uh, maybe you can tell us, uh, and you've already shared a lot of wisdom um, with philosophy, but maybe give us a couple things that uh, might be interesting to the listenership about uh, some coaching experiences you've had. Um, I haven't been so much a coach as, as much as I've been coached. And, and then I just, you know, I pass on little bits of information to friends of mine or, or teammates or whatever. But, um, I remember when I first started cycling, 
someone, uh, probably Kenny, had told me that it takes about 10 years to get good. And I remember thinking, kind of like you did with that one person, I remember thinking, oh, I'll prove you wrong. I'll, I'm going to get good in two years or whatever. No, no, it took at least 10 years. And that's what's so hard about a sport like cycling. And I imagine any ultra endurance sport uh, when you're going, because I did a, a lot of ultra races for cycling. And when you're, I don't know, it does, it takes a long time. Uh, so I would say as far as if you're just getting into cycling, be patient, don't be frustrated. It's a bloody hard thing to do. And you're not going to progress very much or well if you don't have community. So I've always been a big proponent of telling people, you got to surround yourself or at least get some community of like-minded people. And, you know, I've got a friend of mine who's overweight and he smokes and he, he's asked me a couple of times, how do I lose weight? How do I get fit? And I said, well, first you got to start by not hanging out with people who smoke and drink too much because they're going to encourage you to do the same. So you've got, that's, that's like the, the building block. Number one is, is surround yourself with good people and people who are probably better than you because you learn from them and you will, you will, they bring you up to their level. If they're, if they're good and they're welcoming and they're in, inclusive, uh, that's one of the biggest aspects is, is good people. You got to have good people around you, good community. And that way also, like the other day, it, you know, I knew it was going to rain. It was hot as Hades. I didn't want to go riding up on the mountain, but I told people I'd be there. And I went and we rode and we got rained on, but I had a great time. I suffered horribly. And I realized I got to do this more often if I'm going to race next month. Um, but it was, it was those people that, that got me out and, and I had a great time because, you know, I could have stayed here at the house and working. I work out of my house and, you know, sometimes I'll go a few days without having talked to another person. And it's really important to get out have those experiences with other people you learn so much you you watch them ride when you're riding behind them you see the mistakes they make and then you tell yourself okay don't make that mistake and all of a sudden you're becoming as good a rider or maybe better than them before you're even thinking about you know building endurance building speed building a base you know building yourself physically cycling it helps to build yourself psychologically with community and positivity because, again, it's a tough sport and it's it doesn't stop for anybody. It keeps going. And, you know, when you crash and you get hurt, it sucks. But if you've got that community or or when you're learning and you're intimidated by something, if you've got that community. And that's what I love about what I'm doing is I'm still learning so much about riding a bicycle every time I go. It's just, it's one of those things that you can do the, your whole life. And uh, hopefully it doesn't beat you up too much, but I, I still love the fact that I, I ride with people who are much better than me and I love learning and having them share stuff with me. And that makes me feel a little bit better as a human being and any sport that can get you to that place of feeling better about life. Well, that's something you should, you should pursue. Yeah, there's a feeling of freedom about being on a, on a bike, and it, it's very similar to me to skiing, and I think that that's why so many people cross over from skiing, biking, and, and skating for that matter, uh, although I think skiing and skiing and biking are more similar in, in terms of the, the topography and, and seeing the land of the, the area that you're, you're doing versus skating. Um, 
you're a journalist also. So where can people catch uh, some of the stuff that you're writing? Oh, well, most of my stuff is, is just really old. It's like a decade old. And, you know, so it's like it was a different era, right? It was DVDs and Blu-ray. And, um, and it's weird because I was just on the phone with Netflix. They rang me up and want me to work with them on this behind the scenes Twitter friend stuff which would be great. I mean, it's really exciting to think about maybe getting back into it. So right now I'm just pretty boring. I don't have anything exciting going on. Um, as far as what people can check out online, I really haven't produced a whole lot in a long time, but I'm anxious to. So hopefully that's something down the road that, uh, you know, in the not too distant future that I can be involved with again. And, you know, I think it's, it's one big aspect of my life that, for the last few years has been really on hold and I'm anxious to get back to creating and telling stories. But if, you know, if anybody's got a, a DVD player or a Blu-ray player that they want to check out some of my prior work, you can find it online. It's really inexpensive. Um, but the movies I did were uh, Off-Road to Athens. It's about four men and four women trying to make it to the Olympics in mountain biking. And uh, you get a real good inside look at, and, and it's very pertinent still today because the whole World Cup still operates the same and the Olympic selection criteria isn't that different. So that's Off-Road Athens. You can find that on, on eBay. It's not on Netflix anymore. It used to be, but, um, and then second one was 24 Solo, about 24-hour mountain bike racing, um, which isn't really a thing anymore either. Uh, but then the last one was Tour de France and that that's called chasing legends. And that we were the first people to put HD cameras on bikes in the Peloton during the race. And we got really, we, we had cameras on, uh, spectators, cameras on cyclists, cameras on professional photographers. So if you want to get an inside look at what goes on behind the Tour de France, uh, I don't know that there's many other ways you can get that. Um, and uh, and what I feel proud about is that all the films were self-funded. All the films were, you know, self-taught. And and I was very happy that uh, they, they achieved a little bit of success out there. And people seemed to really like them because uh, that made me feel like I was helping to bring more people into being a fan of these sports that I feel so passionate about and I love so much and uh, always have and hopefully always will. Well, that's awesome. Listen, I'm going to uh, just say that personally, I would like when uh, you and there's something uh, that's not too distant to hang out as a fan and watch to connect that way or even just take a bike ride either or but i'll probably yeah. be uh behind your wheel the other way around for the for the ride. well uh, you know i just remembered also that end of september uh i think the 24th of september if you're in the dc area um we're gonna have actually a screening of chasing legends at a small theater uh in downtown dc there's uh, some guy rang me up about it and he's going to host it. And, uh, and hopefully I get a chance to go down there and introduce the film. But, um, well, I will start. Uh, yeah. If you're in the DC area, that, that'd be a great way to see it. And, um, yeah, it's super fun because, uh, it really is, even though the riders are different, uh, Mark Cavendish is still the same and, and it breaks my heart. They didn't take him to the tour this year because he's still got a lot of fight left in him for sure. 
But yeah, it follows Mark Cavendish as a punk kid coming up through and starting to to win a lot of races. But it's also not just about Cav; it's about the whole race, and and hopefully people people really dig it. But yeah, it's I'd be up for uh, you know watching some cycling or uh, or going you know even better get out and go for a ride. So let me know. Definitely, we'll do that. Well, when you um have that i will share that information and we can talk uh off camera audio taping here about uh you know when and where that will be and i'll share that on the uh, social media post for this uh for this uh audio of this podcast yeah that'd be cool listen man thanks so much for taking some time from your roof work today uh oh yeah sorry when you called I was standing on the roof of my van and I, I cut a big hole in it last night and uh, and I waited too long to get out there this morning and my my sneakers were melting on the metal of the van. So I was talking to you and I was like, dude, I got to go. <laughs> so sorry about that. <laughs> that's, that's something. Hey, what should uh, I will leave it with this since we are in the tour, the last tour weekend. What's one little thing people can look for watching the tour without any big spoilers that you think? You know, when they talk about X's and O's and John Madden talking football, what's one thing to look for that you like uh, when you're watching on TV for the, for the final stages of the tour? Um, you know, other than, than watching the women's race, which I think is just as exciting. and uh, Absolutely. And I, I'm so glad. I hope they continue to do that. It's going to bring – it's going to help the sport tremendously and it's it's long overdue but um but i'm a big big fan of uh sprint stages i was never a climber personally i was much more of a roller sprinter and i love that last stage on the champs Elysees, and it gives me goosebumps just thinking about it because you know whether you're watching it on tv or if you're there live in person it's incredibly spectacular it's so special and it's damn hard with those cobbles these guys are racing over, I've ridden down there and I've, I've been there in person and it's mind blowing to think that's why they're riding in the gutters. It's mind blowing to think they're averaging like 33 miles an hour for that stage because it is not an easy stage with all those cobbles. So for me, that's always incredibly exciting and, uh, and it should be again this year. I'm looking forward to it. Well, that's a good tip. Listen, uh, for those listening, uh, this is Dr. Ben Pearl with Fitfoot U. We are going to have later this weekend the scene from Eugene with a sports chiropractor who's, who's there right now uh, helping some of the athletes. And then later in August, I'm going to have goalie, former goalie, D.C. United, Andrew Dykstra, who is both oh, nice. uh, uh, a sports fitness guy and also uh, getting into some stuff with the government with occupational therapy. And he'll have an interesting take on uh, – a lot of stuff with strength training and just uh, maintaining fitness. Jason, oh, thank cool. you so much again and uh, uh, look forward to having that beer and watching your film. Absolutely. I do as well. And thanks for, uh, thanks for bringing me up. I really appreciate it. I, I, I really do. It's fun for me to talk about. So, Absolutely. Take care and have a great weekend, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.